We'll be in John chapter 16. I'd like to turn in your Bibles now to John 16. You've heard of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? This is the Overcomer's Guide to Eternity. This is the kind of teaching you would expect maybe a, a captain or a commander to give his troops right before heading straight into battle. This is the kind of teaching you would imagine someone giving a group of people who had been trained up, prepared, and ready to fight. And I think about the apostles on that Thursday night. And yes, they've been with Jesus for three years. But based on their behavior on that Thursday night, they clearly didn't have a clue. And there was still an awful lot that needed to be done. And I think looking at them from a human perspective, you'd have to say, wow. Jesus, you're about to cut these guys loose to start the church. That's what you're going to do here. Now, thankfully, they would have a power beyond themselves, far beyond themselves. We've been talking about on Sundays, and that's the Holy Spirit. But to look at Peter and John and, and Thaddeus and, and the other guys, Andrew, just going down the list and thinking about those 11 now who are left with Jesus, having left the upper room and now crossing the Cadron Valley, they're headed to Gethsemane. And to think about the guys who are still with him and what's about to happen. It, it makes the words of Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16 all the more significant, all the more profound. See, Jesus never taught like I can teach or Jake or Les or someone else can teach. And that is that, that we teach and we, we try to bring as much of the word of God as possible, but occasionally we can get rattled in our own brains. You know, sometimes we'll realize, I, I, this is just strange maybe to you, but for me, I'll realize sometimes that I've just said something and I'm not even sure what I just said. I don't even know what that last sentence even meant. That's okay, let's just keep going and maybe nobody will notice. Jesus, every single word was intentional. He knew what he was saying. He timed it out perfectly. So the teaching that we have followed with Jesus across three and a half years was always intentional. It was always perfectly timed. And same with this night. Jesus isn't grasping for straws, trying to come up with the final things to share and to throw out just in case, did I forget something? It's not like that. This is Jesus in perfect composure on the night of betrayal, seeding into his apostles what would sprout into faith, what would grow ever stronger by the Holy Spirit. And so, while yes, it's a play on the, the title, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Overcomer's Guide to Eternity, that is what this is really all about. This is Jesus training his disciples to overcome. And even more amazing to me, he wasn't just training the apostles, those 11. Jesus knew these words would be poured over and considered and, and looked at with a fine tooth comb and taken in and absorbed and applied for 2,000 years. So he knew what he was doing. When he said in verse 1, chapter 16, these things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. These things actually refers here to the acerbic hatred that his disciples were about to face and would continue to face in a world that was already, already antagonistic to Jesus and to the Father. 
These things, remember from the, the last chapter, if you look back at verse 18 of chapter 15, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So hatred, amazingly, and hard times are a running sub-theme of the New Testament. While love is out front, and grace is out there, and truth, hatred, persecution, these are threads that run through this tapestry of his teaching. And just when you started to revel in grace and in glory, there are all these warnings. One just pops up, persecution. Another one pops up, tribulation, little t. Tribulation, big T is coming, but it's not for you. But difficulties for believers, as Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You Bible students remember Paul is out there with Barnabas, first missionary journey, and he's been preaching and teaching, and he's, he's actually just been stoned to death and left for dead. He's lying there, and they think he's dead. I think he probably was, but then he opens his eyes and gets up and goes right back into Lystra, where he had been stoned just outside of it. He goes right back into the city, continues on his way, comes back into Lystra, teaching even more, and in Acts 14, 22, it says, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, this is how he encouraged them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's weird in the world. If you want to encourage someone, you don't normally say, hey, listen, next week, it's going to be a tough week. <laughs> if you want to encourage someone, you use comforting words and gentle words, but these are words of warning. And yet they find their way into encouraging the disciple's heart. Hence the greater theme of overcomers, as Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, again, so that you may be kept from stumbling. And Lord, I pray that you will keep us from stumbling tonight as we continue into now and study this chapter, this great chapter, this amazing teaching of Jesus. I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you will illuminate these things for us and keep our eyes open and our hearts clear so that we can hear everything that you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. He says, I want you to be kept from stumbling. I've told you about this. I've warned you about this. I've given you this, this you know, truth that hard times are coming, boys. And I've said it because I don't want you to stumble. Well, the word stumbling there is scandalistete from scandalizo. It's where we get our word scandal. It's scandalon. And this, this word literally means stumbling. It means being scandalized or offended. And that's important. Jesus says, I'm telling you all this because I want to keep you from being offended. I don't want you to be offended. What's he doing? His first miracle was making water into wine, right? Well, with his last teachings, Jesus is now going to take the wine out of discipleship. W-H-I-N-E, no more whining. 
Jesus said, you may recall this to John the Baptist when John was feeling persecuted and alone and imprisoned and he didn't know, he was starting to doubt, starting to question a bit. He wanted reassurance. Jesus said, Matthew 11, verse six, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is the person who's not scandalized by me, who's not offended by their association with me or by the words that I say or by who I am. Blessed is that person. Philippians chapter two, verse 14, Paul said, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among you whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Don't grumble, don't complain, don't whine. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things ahead of time so you won't be offended. When it happens, you won't go, Lord, I gave my life to you and you're allowing this to happen? Jesus would say, I told you that's part of the deal. I said this would happen. And I'm telling you ahead of time so you would know. And speaking the word of life, Jesus doesn't just come along and soothe the troubled soul. Do not let your heart be troubled, right? That's how this whole thing began as he launches into this amazing teaching. Do not let your heart be troubled. But it's not just about soothing and comfort. He steals the hassled disciple. Body and soul and spirit for what's coming, for what lies ahead. He reassures his followers and he reinforces their faith. And in verse two, he says, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Synagogue wasn't just church. It wasn't just Sunday morning attendance. The synagogue was the Jewish social life. Everything revolved around the synagogue. It was the center. It was the heart of the community. To be booted out of the synagogue was to be outcast. It was to become a, a social pariah. And so when Jesus says they're gonna make you outcast from the synagogue, he's saying prepare yourselves because your own people are gonna have nothing to do with you. He says an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. And over 2,000 years, many hateful and or misguided souls have thought that very thing, thought they were in God's service while killing Christians. I share with our staff today that there's a statistic out there that is striking, and that is until the 20th century. The 20th century is the first time we, we can measure in church history where it was antagonists and atheists and outsiders persecuting the church. The vast majority of the time, it was parts of the church persecuting the church. Now, the first 283 years, it was Rome coming down on the church. It was the government against the church. And it was Judaism that did not understand what was going on coming against the church. But after that, and as the church kind of wed itself to government and got politicized, then over time, all of a sudden, the persecution against, the, against true believers, against true Christians, came from within. Came from pockets of Christendom or the ruling power over Christendom, if you can call it that. And so Christians were persecuted even by Christians, those who thought they were in God's service. So when Jesus says this, it's a warning that does span 2,000 years. There are going to be those who are servants or think they're servants of God who will persecute you. Those who think they're doing the right thing. Muhammad, he was nuts. But Islam set against Christianity. How many Faithful Muslims just being faithful to the Quran have persecuted Christians over the centuries. 
But here's the thing. This prophecy of Jesus was not a generalized, like throwing it out, casting it out across 2,000 years. It was very specific and it was very immediate. Think about who Jesus might be talking about. An hour's coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. Is there someone that you can think of that that might refer to? The Apostle Paul. Saul, first of all, Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Can you imagine being dragged off to prison by Saul only to go to a conference and Paul was the teacher? (laughs) Things like that happened in the first century. Paul would write later to the church of Galatia, chapter 1, verse 13, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul says, that was me. Who Jesus describes right here. He specifically describes Saul who would become the apostle. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul wrote, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if Jesus can save a soul, he can save anyone. So let's wipe away that notion that anyone is just too bad to be saved. No, Saul is the perfect example of that. Saul become Paul. But Jesus described here in this verse what happened within the first 30 years of the church and again has continued to be the common experience of many Christians, many true believers to present day. He says, these things they will do, verse three, because they have not known the Father or me. That's a tragedy when someone believes they're doing something in the service of God, but don't really know God. Don't know the Father, don't know Jesus. That's why it's so vitally important that as we walk this walk, we come to know Jesus as he is. Not as we were taught, not as we heard, not as our traditions exploit, but as he is according to Scripture that we know Jesus, the true Jesus, and we understand the Father in his heart. Verse four, but these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So he didn't start off the three and a half year ministry saying, hey, come join me, come walk with me. By the way, it's gonna get ugly, but come on, let's go do this. Although there were times throughout where he would, raise the issue of persecution, where he would address the possibility of difficulties and hardship. But in this, he says, I didn't say these things at the beginning because I was with you. In other words, I had your backs. If there was any heat to be taken, guys, I took the heat. But now, to the apostles, and by extension to you and me, you're moving up to the front line. Now it's gonna be you. I'm not gonna be here to stand between you and the darts of the enemy. You're gonna have to take it. You're gonna be in the front. Which is why Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, 
all who live godly or desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, it may not define your entire life. It may not be all the time or a constant thing. It may just be pockets of persecution. It just may be a moment where you've been persecuted simply because you're trying to do what Jesus said, but you will be persecuted. And the more you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, the more that will increase. The more you desire to be pure and holy and righteous and biblical and Christ-like in this world, the more you can count on people coming against you. It's a spiritual truth. Each, by the way, of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three concludes with promises for, quote, he who overcomes. He who overcomes, Jesus says seven times. You know what that tells us? That tells us there's something that has to be overcome. If I'm to be an overcomer, that means there are things I must overcome. And so for the heart to remain untroubled, we need the whole truth because when the hour comes, we will overcome. And this is what Jesus now starts to get into. I wanna give you seven points to the overcomer's guide to eternity tonight. Seven points to jot down and follow through to help outline chapter 16. And point number one is this, and this is obvious, but I'm going to say it. Overcomers identify with the overcomer. Overcomers identify with the overcomer. The last thing he's going to say in this chapter is, I have overcome the world. Such a certainty in his voice. On the night of betrayal, I have overcome the world. Well, overcomers identify with the overcomer. Listen to how Peter, by the Holy Spirit, understood this. This is over in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. If you'd like to turn there and you can get there quickly, jump over 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter, who was there that night with Jesus in the upper room, walked through this horrific weekend saw him resurrected across 40 days, watched him ascend, and then entered into ministry. Peter, who still stumbled along the way, hey, that's gonna happen. But Peter writes the following, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. I love that. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So if you suffer more, rejoice more. If the persecution intensifies, let your praise intensifies all the more. He says, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, one who identifies with Christ, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. The overcomer identifies with the overcomer, Jesus. Overcomers identify with our Lord. And so if our Lord will suffer, as he's been talking about, so will we, you can count on it. And in John 15, 18, verses 16, or through chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus is explaining the source of that hostile antipathy 
that anger that, that sometimes you're like, where did that come from? All I wanted to do was tell them the good news. It comes from the fact that they hated him first. It comes from the fact that the world is antagonistic against God. And if you're aligned with God, the world will be antagonistic against you. In fact, antagonistic against anyone who abides in Jesus. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And it's weird to tell you all this on a nice, comfortable, sunny evening, Wednesday, late June here in Washington, pretty chill. I don't know, did anybody get persecuted today or this week? I mean, I, I definitely feel the weight of the wickedness in our world, but, but really, did anyone stop you trying to get here tonight to keep you from worshiping? And you know, it, I read these things, and maybe you have too, and you hear this and you go, I, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's good to know, but how hard is it really? And I have this sense, and I hope I'm wrong, but I have this sense that part of the reason we're studying this now is because the Lord knows what's coming. In the same way Jesus knew what was coming for the apostles, knew what they were about to hit in that weekend and then for the rest of their lives. So the Lord knows what's coming for the church. And he's saying, listen, to the degree that you bear the sufferings of Christ, praise him all the more. Be ready for that. It may yet come. So Peter teaches this, and as we identify with Jesus, remember first that he identified with us and as we do so, that means we will share in his pains, his sorrows, his sufferings. And yet as we do, we'll become more and more like him. Overcomers identify with the overcomer. Verse five, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? Didn't Peter? Jesus says, and this is a problem for commentators. They have a lot of problems, these commentators. None of you asked me, where, where are you going, Jesus says. And I think, well, wait, I thought Peter did. Look back to chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And now Jesus says, none of you asked me, where are you going? Did Jesus not hear Peter? What's going on here? Peter did ask, where are you going? But Jesus obviously is talking about something else. And here's the thing, Peter's question back in chapter 13, verse 36, has Peter front and center. When Peter asks the question, he's not concerned so much about where Jesus is going, he's concerned about the fact that Jesus is going somewhere that he's not going. What about me? Where am I in this plan? How does this fit my ideas or, or, or my paradigm, Lord? He's really saying, why can't I go? And it's not a heavenly concern. It's a very earthly concern. And Peter had been there before. You remember at Caesarea Philippi, when he had just made that profound statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and, and, and everyone's amazed, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And almost immediately after that, Jesus then begins to train them up, teach them about the coming crucifixion. And Peter says, no way, Lord, Will we let that happen? And what does Jesus say to him? Matthew 16, 23. Get behind me, Satan. 
You're a stumbling block to me for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but on man's. And so on this night of betrayal, when Peter asks that question, where are you going now that I can't follow? Where are you going, Lord? He's not asking with the right heart. He's not asking the right question. He's asking for himself. Listen, second thing to note, overcomers keep a heavenly itinerary. Overcomers keep a heavenly itinerary. They are intent, the overcomer is intent on knowing where he was going. Which is why Jesus now brings it up in chapter 16. None of you ask me, where are you going? It's the where that he wants them to focus on. It's the where that matters. No one's asking about that, at least not from a heavenly map set. They're not asking directions to the future kingdom or to the kingdom of heaven. How do we know that? How do we know that this is more of a heart issue? Look at verse six. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And he tags them. Sorrow has filled your heart. I've told you I'm going, and you become sorrowful instead of rejoicing. And that is a worldly sorrow. That is not a heavenly rejoicing. Here's the thing. Sorrow, which is happening in, in the room and happening in the journey across the valley that evening, sorrow blurs the eyes of the heart. Sorrow blurs the eyes of the heart so that we can't see our way through it. Now, I'm not saying sorrow is a bad thing. In fact, oftentimes sorrow can be a very good thing, a very washing, a very cleansing thing. But if we cling to it, if we hold on to it, and even when we're in the midst of it, it is harder to see clearly when we are sorrowful. Now you might say, hang on a second. Wasn't Jesus called a man of sorrows? Isaiah 53, verse three, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That word sorrows there is literally sufferings, pains. Did Jesus know pains? Absolutely. Did Jesus experience sufferings in this life? Without a doubt. Griefs, look at Gethsemane. But listen to me on this. While Jesus was a man of sorrows, Jesus was not a sorrowful man. He was a man of sorrows, not a sorrowful man. That is, he didn't go around all glum and bummed and depressed. He knew sorrow, he knew suffering, he knew grief, he experienced it, but it did not define him because Jesus had a heavenly itinerary. The overcomer always does. The overcomer has the ability to see beyond this life and to know no matter how dark things may seem or get or feel here, I've got a heavenly itinerary. My ways app is set for heaven. That's where I'm going. So you can be a man, a woman of sorrows and yet not be a sorrowful man or woman. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. So you can have a lifetime even of pains and sufferings and not be sorrowful. And I'm gonna double down tonight on what I said Sunday morning about what we talked about. That is the abiding life is permeated with joy. This is defining for the person who abides in Christ and therefore for the overcomer. A life permeated with joy. That heavenly itinerary brings joy back in to a life even that 
experiences sufferings or pains or sorrows. Listen, I can't choose those things. I can't choose my sufferings. I can't choose my pains or my sorrows. Now, I can make bad choices that bring suffering, but while I can't choose my suffering, you know what I can choose? I can choose his joy. I can choose his joy, regardless of my life circumstance. Do not let your heart be troubled, Jesus says. Now, I'll come back to that. I said I'll double down on that, so we'll come back in a minute. But on the sorrow side of things, and staying with this idea that overcomers keep a heavenly itinerary, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says, the sorrow that's according to God produces a repentance without regret unto salvation. You could say a joy. Joy in heaven. That's sorrow that is according to God. But the sorrow of the world just produces death. Their hearts that night were troubled and were filling up with sorrow because they were looking inward rather than upward. They were looking at their own circumstances, at their own coming loss, at their own fear and doubts and worry and confusion. They were all awash in that. They were not able to see clearly. See, I told you sometimes it's coming out and I don't even know. They're not able to see clearly because the sorrow is engulfing them and Jesus is taking them through this to help them understand. Look, guys, you can choose joy even in this. Colossians chapter three, verse one, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things of earth. No, keep seeking the things above. How many of us, just measure yourself, how many of us, hear a great teaching, have a great time of worship, spend some wonderful time in prayer, and then immediately go back to seeking the things below. Think about how much time, effort, and energy we put into seeking that which is below rather than seeking the things above, the heavenly itinerary. So you're not gonna overcome this world by fighting against this world and dealing on a worldly level. You will overcome the world with a heavenly itinerary, a heavenly vision which is broader and greater than anything that happens on this surface. Paul says, Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So the overcomer has that heavenly itinerary. Now, when Jesus says, sorrow has filled your heart, he says, none of you have asked, where are you going? None of you are thinking about what's about to happen, where I'm headed. And so sorrow has filled your heart. He's not hammering the apostles here. He's tenderly recognizing, yes, they are in pain. They are sorrowful. They are worried. And Jesus knew something. That night, he knew they lacked something that is absolutely integral to joy. Verse seven. But I tell you the truth, it's for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Guess what? Number three, overcomers are inspired by the parakleton. And I'm gonna keep using that word as much as I can while we're at this part of John. The parakleton, I use that word of the spirit of God over and over because I want you to keep thinking. Helper, comforter, strengthener, advocate. He's all of that. The Holy Spirit. In fact, go back to chapter 14, verse 16. Listen again to these promises. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another parakleton, another helper, comforter, strengthener, advocate. 
that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Skip down to verse 26 of chapter 14. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 8. And when he comes... He, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Let me just quickly side note tell you, that's good news because I don't have to do it. It is not my job to convict the world. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's my job to tell the truth. It's my job to speak the truth in love, to stand for what is right and good and true. But it's not my job to worry about the conviction aspect of it or to try and drag people into some kind of faith. The Spirit does that. He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. What in the world does all that mean? I'll tell you Sunday. But verse 12, he says, and I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But he, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose to you all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Well, what exactly does that mean? I'll tell you a week from Sunday. But the overcomer is inspired by the Holy Spirit for all of this. We get to this point in chapter 16 and suddenly we realize all the things that Jesus says that we would not have troubled hearts are truly impossible except by the Holy Spirit. It is the promise of the Spirit that makes the rest of this attainable, keepable in our own hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who allows us to navigate sorrow with joy. It's the Holy Spirit who brings to mind the critical and vital sayings of Jesus at just the right time. It's the Holy Spirit's work in us and, 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 and alongside us and upon us. It is the Spirit of the living God and the overcomer is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But notice what he, what he says again. Look at verse 12, right in the midst of this. So he says some things about the Holy Spirit. And then he says some more things. But in the middle, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Ah, oh, I wish I could tell you more, you guys. But this is all you can take. This is all you can really handle. That word bear is bastadzain. It, it literally means to carry with the hands. You can't carry this now. This is more than you can bear. The weight is too heavy. What I want to tell you, what I want to share with you, it's, it's more than you can even comprehend, much less carry with you. Why? Because the things that Jesus wants to tell them and the things that they will learn by the Holy Spirit requires the power that the Holy Spirit offers. Without that power, you can't bear this. Without my spirit to give you the strength to carry, you will not be able to carry these things. Okay, well, when will they begin 
to be able to bear these things. Verse 13 tells us, when he, the spirit of truth, comes. That's when these, these things can be born by his followers. And note this, their ability to start to bear these things began on resurrection eve. That night, when Jesus breathed on them, John 20, verse 22, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In that moment, suddenly they had a strength they did not have before. And they were able to now start putting together in their little brains what had just happened and what was about to happen. They were just starting to be able to bear the things that they could not bear Thursday night. By Sunday evening, they would bear them by the power of the Spirit. That's how quickly a life can change, by the way. You know, it's just a few days. The power then that the Spirit was given to them would increase exponentially at Pentecost. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That word power, dunamis. There is a power, and, and please don't misunderstand, this is not like a Marvel superpower. The power of the Holy Spirit is a power to bear with faith and hope and love. It's a power to be an overcomer for Christ Jesus. It is a spiritual power that is beyond what we can generate in the physical life. And it increased in them. It began on Resurrection Eve. It increased at Pentecost. And that power, listen, for all overcomers. Number four, are we on number four right now? Yeah. Overcomers increase by the Holy Spirit. So we're not only inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we increase by the Holy Spirit as the power itself continues to increase in us and through us. And I'm telling you all this to answer this question. Why doesn't God just give it all to us right now? Why not dump the dunamis on me the moment I believe all that I need, all the power in the world, I can just, I can just literally lift off like Superman and be done. Why not have all the power in this moment? Because not only the giving of the Holy Spirit, but also the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, which is maturity and sanctification. We see in the church at Corinth, the church that needed some maturity because they were given a lot of power and they didn't know what to do with it. They were like children with power tools. You know, everything out of control. And Paul had to dial them down and say, look, these gifts are for these reasons. So he gives us Power, but that, that power, the Holy Spirit power in, a, in an overcomer's life, in a Christian's life, is an increasing power that you should know more of and experience more of the power of the Holy Spirit later on than early on. That the entire process of maturity encourages that. It begins when the Holy Spirit takes up residency in me, but increases from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul said to the church at Corinth, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, bunch of babies, because you're still fleshly. Paul really calls them out on this in the first letter that he writes to Corinth. You're acting like a bunch of immature children. And you're running around with these gifts and you don't know what you're doing. You need maturity to accompany the gifts. You need to increase in the Holy Spirit. See, some would say all these powerful gifts that were out of control in Corinth, those gifts should have stopped. No, no. The 
Holy Spirit needed to increase in them, not decrease. They needed more. Maybe not more of the spiritual gifts, but they needed more of the maturity of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew pastor said in verse 13, everyone who partakes of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so one of the most profound things the Holy Spirit does in your life, in my life, is train us up by the word of God. And the more we're trained by the word and the more mature we come, we become in the word, the more he increases the power. He, he turns up the power because we're mature believers to handle that power. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, I love this. Paul said, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man everyone experiences these things but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it bear it handle it Jesus says here you can't carry what I want to tell you but you will later and Paul later says you'll be able to handle even the most difficult Temptations, but the word is also tests. Difficult tests, difficult trials. Parosmos is the word in the Greek. When will we cease to increase? At what point will we actually finally be fully matured? Because I'm 57, folks, and I'm still waiting. When does it happen? I am confident of this very thing, Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you this right now, just as Jesus told the apostles, this is part of our understanding as overcomers. This is a long-term journey that we are on. This is a long obedience in the same direction. Do not expect to have all the power, all the ability, and all the maturity tonight. It's not gonna happen. You will have it all in the day of Christ Jesus. That's when finally it will all come together for every one of us. For the perfection of the overcomer is the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. A little while, Jesus says, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. <laughs> I love what a little while is to Jesus. I'll tell you what that is in a little while. <laughs> Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing that he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this thing he, he says? A little while. We do not know what, what he's talking about. This is so funny to me. Jesus is right there. And they're talking to each other. Peter, do you know what he's saying? I don't know what he's talking about. John, you have any idea? I don't know. Ask Andrew. I'm not sure. Hey, Andrew, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Check with Bartholomew. And they're not, they're all, they're, they're slipping into old habits. Can you imagine the, the apostles and Jesus as they travel from place to place, village to village, town to town, out under the stars one night, and he just told a major parable that day, and they're sitting around discussing it among themselves, and they have Jesus right there. And we still do that. We still sit around and discuss things instead of just asking him. What do you mean, Lord? What is this that you mean? It, it, you know, this is the thing about, and I love our, our, our home groups, and I think small groups are vital to the heart and ministry of a church because ministry can happen in a home where two or three are gathered in his name. But one of my pet peeves, this is a, this is a home group pet peeve of mine, 
is when a home group leader sits down and reads a passage and, and closes the Bible and says, well, what do you think that means? <laughs> you know what? I could really care less what everybody in the group thinks that means. I want to know what Jesus means. And I don't mean to be offensive because sometimes we come to that as we discuss and then we pray together and we seek the Lord together. But, but there's this, I mean, I think this is kind of a problem that the church has had over the last couple of decades in, in small group ministry of really kind of skirting the surface. Well, what do you think? Well, what do you think? Well, my theology is this. Well, my thoughts are that. I don't, that's not what we need. We need his word. We need to say, Jesus, what did you mean by saying this? It's not Jake's opinion that I need, no offense. It's Jesus' opinion. It's not Doug's opinion that I'm looking for. It's Jesus' opinion. And I would advise, even in a small group setting, if you're looking at some, some of the hard sayings of Jesus or some difficult passage in the scripture, read it together. And before you begin to discuss anything, ask the Holy Spirit to give you all wisdom so that you can know what he wants us to take away and to comprehend from his word. Well, Jesus is right there. And in verse 19, it says, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this? <laughs> that I said a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And you can see him kind of shuffling their feet. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you just ask me? Verse 20, truly, truly. Now note that when Jesus says, amen, amen, this is important. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, and this is absolutely true, ladies back me up on this, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. The fact that any woman would ever want to be pregnant a second time blows my mind. After watching my wife go through childbirth the very first time with Corey, 14 hours of labor. I know some of you ladies have it longer, some have it less. Let's not get into that tonight. But 14 hours of labor, natural childbirth, right? Which means that the mother can't have any drugs. Dad can have all he wants. <laughs> but after that night... And after the pain I watched Cheryl go through, I could easily have said she will never have another child as long as she lives. And yet, she was ready so fast. Why? Why? There's something divine, I think, that God does in causing a woman to forget. And it's not that she forgets the pain or the labor pains or she's not aware that it happened, but the joy is greater. The joy is greater. The joy overwhelms it. This is what Jesus is saying. And he says in verse 22, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And he is describing very clearly what would happen that resurrection Sunday. That's a little while for Jesus. Thursday to Sunday is a little while. So just to understand his thinking. In a little while, you'll see me. You see me tonight? There's going to be this horrible, awful thing that takes place. Sunday night, you're going to see me again. Now, he doesn't tell them that. Why not? They got a process. They have to get to that place, and sometimes the Lord will do that. He will allow us to get to that very dark and seemingly impossible place. 
before he shows up again and we experience that great joy that he wants us to know. And he did it with the apostles. And what he says is going to come. He promises them this. You're going to be like women in labor. (laughs) And truly, Friday night, Saturday, on into early Sunday morning, can you imagine just the writhing in pain and sorrow that they were experiencing and Jesus let them go through it? He knew they needed to because on the other side of that sorrow was this immense joy. Here's where we double down. Number five in your list, overcomers have an inborn, innate, intrinsic joy. I couldn't, I couldn't settle on any one word, so I'll give you a bunch there. An inborn joy, an innate joy, an intrinsic joy. You could add to that an incredible, incomprehensible, incontrovertible joy. The joy in the life of someone who is truly an overcomer in Jesus is is overwhelming. It is an awesome joy. It is a deep, rich, profound joy that you cannot measure by how you're feeling that day. Overcomers, listen to me. You will have days where you are sorrowful and the weight of the world is heavy and yet there is joy in your heart. There is a joy there that is everlasting that you know will take away this pain that you feel in the moment. Incredible joy. On Sunday, and I, and I, I know this, I know there were some who struggle with this idea that, okay, so the abiding life is permeated with joy. That was a point from Sunday morning. The abiding life is permeated with joy. Well, I'm not permeated with joy, so maybe I don't have the abiding life. And if you thought that on Sunday, you completely missed the point. That we're called to abide that our lives might be permeated by the joy of the Lord. Not the joy of myself, the joy of the Lord. Let me reiterate, we are not talking about idle happiness. We're not talking about generating some kind of artificial cheer or some kind of emotional ecstasy. No, the joy of the Lord, which is always present. And so three days later, when the apostles saw and believed, they were permeated with this joy, and it was a joy that would never leave. Jesus had to take them through the weekend and meet them on the other side of it and give them that joy because this joy would be necessary for the rest of their ministry lives. Unlike anything they had ever experienced before. But note this, on that day, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus told them about an even greater joy than the one that they were experiencing and seeing him and realizing it really is him and this is all true and he is God with us. As that's hitting them and they're taking it in, Jesus says, there is an inborn joy that's even greater than this, an inborn joy that comes only of being born again. Jesus says, John 20, verse 29, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. There's a greater joy out there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter said, Those you, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with what Peter describes as joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the overcomer identifies with the overcomer, Jesus. The overcomer keeps a heavenly itinerary. Overcomers are inspired by the Holy Spirit, increased by the Holy Spirit. 
and they have, number five, an inborn joy, an innate joy, an intrinsic joy, or come up with your own I word, but just make sure it's a big one. For the joy that is within us as followers of Jesus, look at verse 23. And in that day, you will not question me about anything. Now stop there just for a minute. I've said this before, but I think there are an awful lot of people who say, when I get to heaven, I got some questions for Jesus. Let me just tell you right now, in that day, you will not question him about anything. Your questions will be gone. You're not even gonna, you're not even gonna be able to remember them. Well, there was that time that, so what, you're there. Doesn't matter. All those questions, doubts, fears, all that stuff, it's not gonna be there. In that day, you will not question me about anything. But listen, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Okay, wait a minute. Jesus says we'll no longer question but in that day you'll ask. Isn't that the same thing? Not exactly. Number six, I'll give you seven, so this is number six. Overcomers don't inquire, they intercede. Overcomers don't inquire, they intercede. Inquiring minds want to know, I understand this. You know, they want to question. And Jesus says, you're not gonna question me any longer, but you will ask the Father for anything in my name, anything aligned with my will, anything that is, that is of my heart. You ask the Father and, and you'll receive that. So you're not gonna question, you're gonna ask. Here's the difference. The word question is erotesite, and it literally means to inquire, as, as I was saying. You're inquiring. The word ask is itesite, and it means to petition which is why I say the overcomer doesn't inquire, the overcomer intercedes. Now this is part of the maturity process in the life of a disciple, of an overcomer, but listen to it this way, questions challenge, petitions seek counsel. Questions demand answers, petitions request help. Questions imply Mistrust. Petitions reveal trust. Questions have a tendency to push back in doubt. Well, why? Well, how come? Well, explain it to me. Whereas petitions lean into God, recognizing he has all I need. And that's the difference between the inquiries and the intercession, between the questions and the petitions. A, an overcomer isn't questioning God to try and force an answer. The overcomer is interceding for the saints, as, as Paul said, Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And this is now, by the way, the fifth time that Jesus has invited them to ask anything in his name that they might receive it. Because petitioning leads to that fulfilling joy. We petition the Lord, we bring our thoughts to the Lord, we intercede to the Lord, but we don't question him. We don't worry about that. The questions he will answer. Verse 24. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. This is why I say petitioning leads to a fulfilling joy. He says, ask, and, and you'll, you'll receive your joy. 
He says in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me. And I believe that I came forth from the Father. Jesus says, you're not going to ask through me anymore. You can go direct. You can ask God the Father yourself. You can go straight to him. Our asking, our interceding is, is literally direct to God. Now, Jesus and the Spirit both enhance those prayers. And we, we need to talk about that probably another time. But the Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words, Romans chapter 8 tells us. So there are times we're not even sure what to pray, and the Spirit will intercede on our behalf and, and explain and, and bring the real prayer to the Lord. And Jesus, we're told in both Romans and, and in Hebrews that he is interceding on our behalf. He ever lives to make intercession on behalf of the saints. So Jesus is praying for you. But listen, when you pray, you don't pray through Joseph, Mary, or the saints. You don't pray through a priest. There is no other mediator but Jesus. And here, Jesus is even saying, you don't even have to go through me, I've already made the way available for you. Jesus is the way, but because of his death, burial, and resurrection, you can go direct to God. He's saying it like this. In essence, until now, if there was a storm on the sea, well, then you cried out to me. You know, Peter, if your mother-in-law was sick, who did you ask? You came to me, and I healed her. When y'all were hungry on the hillside, remember that? You came to me and we all had a big lunch. You came to me. I fed you. In all these instances, Jesus might say, you came to me. But now, now, I love how he says this. In that day you will ask in my name and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you. Jesus is saying God wants to hear from you. You go direct. Why? Because he tore the veil. Because he inaugurated a new and living way into the house and presence of God. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Overcomers don't inquire. They intercede. They go direct to God. Jude verse 20, You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, not deconstructing it, building yourself up. Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Father loves you. Father loves me. Father wants to hear from his kids. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and am going to the Father. Man. That is one verse of profound theology. Just packed in one, one sentence, the way Jesus encapsulates all this. Listen, he says, I came forth from the Father. That's his incarnation. I have come into the world. You could say that's his humiliation. I'm leaving the world again by way of his resurrection and ascension, and I am going to the Father, his glorification, all in one sentence. He has just described the nature, the work, and the overcoming victory of the Christ. Wow. 
Paul said, 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And that's what Jesus just said in verse 28. Now, did they get it? Were they finally understanding in John chapter 16 after all the things they'd been through with Jesus and what he had taught them that very night? Were they receiving it? Well, they thought so. Verse 29, his disciples said, Lo, now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. You know what that is? That's trying to generate faith. Okay, we get it, Jesus, right? We get it, don't we, Peter? Yeah, we do, we get it. We understand now. Now we know that you are come from God. And you know, whoever didn't say that was sitting there going, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Now we know they didn't really know. They didn't understand as much as maybe they wanted to understand. I think they believed as well as they could. Jesus even says to them in verse 31, do you now believe? Now, if I throw a Jewish accent into that, maybe a little Hebrew attitude, what you would really hear Jesus, is say, Jesus saying is, do you now believe? Do you now believe? Or in other words, really? <laughs> Seriously? He says, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Now we get it, Jesus. We're with you, Jesus. We understand now, Jesus. And you're about to be scattered, says Jesus. If I had a nickel for every time in my life, I said, I believe you, Lord, and I was off running in the next moment. My faith scattering. And that's exactly what's about to happen to them. And again, he gently reveals this to them. Here's the thing. They believed what they could believe as well as they could, but they had no frame, no, no sense of understanding to get what Jesus was really saying. They had all the teachings. They did not yet have his spirit. And so while they were hanging on the best that they could in their flesh, they still didn't quite get it, and that is why they would scatter. Now, listen, at this point, we're probably at Gethsemane. So they probably arrived having crossed the valley and from, if you stand even on the lower end of Gethsemane, the lower end of the Mount of Olives and you look across the Kedron Valley, you get a beautiful view of Jerusalem and of the old city and of the Temple Mount. You can look across and it's possible, I'm not saying that this is absolute in this second, in this moment, but it's possible right here as Jesus says you're about to be scattered that he could already see the torches Looking across the valley, he could already see the torches gathering for that cohort of Roman soldiers and the officers of the chief priests led by Judas. Perhaps across the valley, he could already hear the echoes of marching as they're coming his direction. And so he tells them now, guys, you're about to scatter. He doesn't say it to discourage them. He says it to prepare them. This is what's going to happen. So that when it happens, the, you know, they could feel just so awful, so guilty, so horrific in their own spirits, but then they could stop and go, but wait, 
He knew this was going to happen. He told us we'd scatter. In fact, he told us we, scatter, we would scatter after telling us all these things that we were going to do later. So he knew this would take place. See how that would lift a little bit of the guilt? And suddenly they start going, this is bigger than we thought it was. You're going to scatter, he says. Again, not to discourage, but to prepare. And by the way, that's prophecy. Jesus is sharing Bible prophecy. Zechariah 13, verse 6. One will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. And Matthew tells us that they were indeed on the Mount of Olives when Jesus said that very thing, which is why I stop right here in verse 32 and say, I think this is when they were at the Mount of Olives because he says you're going to scatter. And when he says that you're going to scatter and quotes Zechariah 13 in Matthew, they were on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 26, 31, he says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. They were more overcome than overcomers at that point. More overwhelmed by their grief and their sorrow and their fear than they were these glorious apostles. But now listen to Jesus and please hear this final point. Verse 32 continuing, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Behold, an hour is coming, verse 32, and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home. In other words, to desert me and leave me here. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Number seven, overcomers are never isolated. The devil will tell you otherwise. But overcomers are never isolated, are never alone. No one is alone who is a child of the Father. No one. Oh, Rick, I feel so alone. I get that, but you're not. So you got to separate out the feelings from the reality. The reality is as a follower of Jesus Christ, he is with you. He is in you. His spirit alongside you and upon you and within you. The Father is with you. You are not alone. You are never isolated the way the devil wants you to think you are. As his children, we're never isolated. Listen to this prophecy. This is back Isaiah chapter 50. Again, speaking of Jesus or Jesus speaking. I gave my back to those who strike me. Remember this? And my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Awful, alone, isolated. And yet he says in verse 7 of Isaiah 50, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Overcomers are never isolated. God is always with you, always present. And this right here is huge to recognize. Right here in the New Testament, when Jesus says, I am not alone because the Father is with me. So how can we then turn around and say, except for that moment on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
I am not alone, except for a few minutes there where I was being crucified. Then I was totally alone because the Father wouldn't even look at me. And I come back to this again. I think the church missed it. Popular Christianese has missed this and misunderstood this. That when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First and foremost, what he's saying is turn to Psalm 21, verse 1. The Psalm of the Cross. Read it through. From the cross, Jesus, ever the teacher, ever the rabbi, did what rabbis do. I've told you, you know how rabbis called up a teaching. They didn't say, turn to Psalm 22, verse 1, because there was no Psalm 22, verse 1. There was just Psalm, that Psalm, the Psalm of David. Well, how do we know which Psalm we're going to study today? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that one, turn there. And so Jesus from the cross is quoting from the Psalm, Rabbi Jesus alerting all overcomers that that psalm was being fulfilled right in front of them. Test what you see against what the word says, against what was prophesied. That's what he's doing on the cross. Now, second to that, in his humanity, it is possible that that Jesus, for the moment, as he spoke those words, could relate to David feeling alone, that, that in that moment, he may have actually even felt alone. But Jesus understands something, and we all need to get this. Feelings are not truth. They're feelings. You can feel alone. That doesn't mean you're alone. And Jesus says it here. I am not alone because the Father is with me. That's absolute. And that is the key to the overcomer. You are not alone. The Father is with you. You are never alone. But I feel alone. I understand. But you're not alone. There's a huge difference there. Overcomers in Christ, in the Father, and with the Spirit. You're never alone. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And Jesus, the Son of God, declares here, I am never alone, the Father's with me. If the Father's with you, you are never alone. The overcomer is never isolated. And so Jesus says in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Last thing I'll tell you here. The overcomer belongs to two, call them overlapping spheres of existence that Jesus just described in that verse. Two fears that are coexistent, that happen at the same time, they overlap, and that is in this world and in Jesus. Now, if you're not in Jesus, if you're, then you're not an overcomer. You're just in the world. But if you've given your life to Jesus, you are now in the world and in Jesus. You are in both. And these overlapping spheres of existence actually end up kind of set against each other. In this world, you'll have tribulation. Little t. Tribulation. The word is flipson. And flipson is also the word that's used for tribulation, capital T, the coming tribulation. The seven-year tribulation that Revelation 6 through 19 describes in detail. But you're not going to have capital T tribulation. You're going to have little tribulations, little philipsis. What's interesting about that word is it's specifically and especially used in the New Testament 
to describe end times trouble. So when Jesus says we live in the overlap of in the world and in me, and in that overlap, you're going to experience it more and more. You're going to experience little tribulations, troubles, anxieties, problems, sufferings, griefs, difficulties. You're going to experience that because you're still in the world. But he says, in me, you have peace. In the world, you're going to have trials. In me, you've already overcome. That's the overcomer. Because Jesus, though we're overlapped and still in the world, Jesus is our courage and he is our peace. Take courage. I've overcome the world. God, this is so amazing. Thank you for these words, Jesus. Praise you. Just bless your name that, that you had the capacity to do such profound teaching even on the night of your own sorrow, your greatest sorrow. Even as from these words, you would go into sweating blood and, and dealing with that awesome weight of the sin of humanity that was laid before you to bear on your shoulders. Thank you for telling us what you've told us. And I pray, Lord, that you truly would give us that sense of overcomers. Not that life will be easy, but, but we overcome because you already have overcome the world. It's done. Lord, you won. And we are victors because of you. So as we still exist in the overlap of these two in the world and in Christ, I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you will build us up as overcomers, as true believers, as your people. Fill us with all these truths and bring these truths to mind by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask simply for the strength of your Spirit to bear all these things, to believe all these things, and to endure all these things. In the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.